Well, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes here, and I want you to open up to chapter 7, verse 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 11. Uh, Pastor Bob was uh, so great to preach last week. Were you encouraged by Pastor's, Pastor Bob's message last week? What a blessing it is to have him able to bring the word. Make sure you always share with the preacher how the message impacted your life. If you haven't already done that, give him some encouragement this week. So today the sermon is called Begin with the End in Mind. And I want to give you a little update also as to where I was last week. I was gone, Lauren and I were gone all week last week because we were at three conferences in a row. Bam, bam, bam. And that's why I was gone last Sunday. And I have a lot to be thankful for, which I want to share with you uh, throughout this sermon. So one of the conferences we went to was for the NSP, the National School Project. And that's the organization that we partner with to get the gospel into local public schools. So if I've told you a story about being at Richards High School or Oaklawn High School or Stag or Shepherd or whatever, and there have been, you know, 75, 150, 300 kids on some of these events in their school during lunch hearing the gospel from me or a speaker that's come in, that's orchestrated through NSP. It's a dynamic organization. And um, it's been around for 20 years, but it's just now getting a full head of steam. So we were invited to be at their first uh, ever national conference in Phoenix. And they invited a bunch of people to become some key donors and then some speakers just to spread the word about this ministry. So here's a picture. You're going to get mad at me. Here's a picture of where I preached last Sunday, okay? Uh, that's me in Phoenix bringing the word, David and Goliath, to this conference. Here's another picture. Uh, and it was really gorgeous out, and it was outside, and I know you hate me now. But that's where we were last Sunday. I got to preach, and here's a picture of the conference. Um, it was actually really amazing. They had Josh McDowell was there talking about, you know, uh, reaching young people these days. Erwin Lutzer was there. And get this, Erwin Lutzer tried to invite everybody to come to his sermon instead of mine. Yeah, Saturday night, Erwin Lutzer's like, I'm going to be preaching at such and such church tomorrow if you want to come. And the leader of NSP got up and said, Erwin, our conference is still going tomorrow morning. We have Pastor Ryan Hall preaching tomorrow morning. And Erwin said, well, then you can stay here and hear that Hall guy if you want to. <laughs> that Hall guy. But guess what? They stayed and they heard me. So there, Erwin. <laughs> and maybe they didn't have a rental car. I don't know. But they were there is the whole point. So we were there at the NSP conference, and um, that's when it was Saturday. The war had broken out. And Saturday, I'm at the conference while I'm texting with people about the war and how we're going to support Alex. It was just all of these things were happening at once. So while we have our burden, broken hearts for what our partners in Ukraine, we also have these amazing praise reports for what's going on with other organizations. And that just seems to be the way the life, that life is going right now. So the sermon today is called Begin with the End in Mind. And Solomon has had a lot to say. He's on a quest. His search goes on. He is looking for lasting sources of meaning and pleasure. And he's not finding them on earth. In fact, he tells us that if we fear God, follow his ways, it's the only hope of finding gladness on earth. Nothing on earth can satisfy your soul apart from God. Gladness only comes from him. Solomon today is going to show us the same thing, that we have to begin living with the, with the end in mind because we're not going to find the purpose apart from God. I want to say another quick prayer before we get into the word together. Let's lift this up to the Lord. Jesus, bless our time in your word. Bless our time as we hear from you, as we hear from the divine voice, O Lord, which is captured here in scripture. 
As Solomon is writing and your spirit prompted him to do so, show us that we can't find anything here on earth that will satisfy our souls which long for eternity. I pray, O Lord, that instead of that, you would show us your glory, which is only above. And help us to live for that because you died for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, it's, as a preacher, it's tough to figure out exactly what Solomon's trying to tell us what to do or think because he's just like moaning and grumbling for a long time. And if I wanted to be exactly true to the text, I'd just stand up here and complain about how life doesn't satisfy and then say, let's pray, right? But I'm reaching to the chapters around and the New Testament to show what we're supposed to do with his information. In particular today, um, I'm drawing from Ecclesiastes 6, 12, um, where Solomon says, who knows what is good for the man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which passes like a shadow. So he's asking that question, well, what's good? What's, what's good in life? And he's trying to answer that question. And then chapter 7, 1 and 2, which Pastor Bob preached on last week, a good name is better than precious ointment, the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Better to go to a funeral than a party. His point is this, the end is coming. We have to get ready. Therefore, how do we live? I see that as the guiding, governing question for this entire section. That's why the sermon is called, Begin with the End in Mind. He's continuing that thought in verse 11. He says, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Okay, so jot this down, number one. Always hold fast to God's wisdom. Always hold fast to God's wisdom. He also goes on in verse 23 and 24 in this section. We're peeking ahead. Saying, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and very deep. Who can find it out? In verse 19, he also says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. In this section, Solomon is sharing a uh, collections of Proverbs that tie into his search. And ultimately, it still dumps him off into despair. But he's showing you the road that he walked. And so these collections of Proverbs are kind of grouped together. The NIV actually does a really good job of showing how, how there are kind of groupings and sections here. The ESV more just continues one long rambling thought. Um, but the first idea is always hold fast to God's wisdom. What is wisdom and where do I find it? Wisdom is a major Old Testament theme, especially in the category called the wisdom literature. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom, one definition I heard that stuck with me through the years, wisdom is this, truth applied to life in light of experience. Truth applied to life in light of experience. It's not just wisdom will win you jeopardy. That's not it. Knowledge is part of it, but it's understanding. And it's the application of how that applies to life. Truth applied to life in light of experience. When you add in the fear of the Lord, that is the full vision of what wisdom truly is. Well, what good is it? There's a protection. Solomon, even though he says that life is just nothing but all dead ends, he still holds that living wisely is better than living foolishly. There's a protection. It says here, in, um, in the original language, where, you know, where it says here, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. Actually, it, 
It sounds like this in the original. Um, it says that uh, it says that in the shadow of wisdom, in the shadow of money. So there's a shadow of wisdom, and that's like the shadow of money. Now, what does he mean here? There's a couple things. He could be comparing the two and saying having wisdom is like having money. There's a correlation. And it's like, it's like a shadow. It's like a shade over you. Now, that both shows that there is something to it, but there's also not much to it. Like, you get some protection, you get some cover from the sun, you know, but it doesn't last, and eventually it'll all be gone. He could also be saying that there is a connection between if you have wisdom, you will have money. The Bible does assert that as well. The wise person often does better because they have more self-control, more knowledge. So um, we don't know exactly what he's saying here, but when he says wisdom is good with an inheritance, he could be meaning wisdom is leading to the inheritance. Or he could just be saying wisdom and an inheritance is the best. An advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Throughout this book and throughout Proverbs, there will be the rule and the exception. As a rule, those who have wisdom will do better in life than the fool, than the simple. As a rule, those who have money will enjoy more uh, pleasure and more protection. Now, you could be wicked and rich and you could be righteous and rich. There are still uh, verses that go into how you're supposed to handle that money. But as a rule, these things, wisdom and money, give you some shade and protection in life. Because of that, we should always hold fast to God's wisdom. Now, we have to understand that in this world, the harsh uncertainties of life are coming, and if we are wise, and if we are wise financially, that will lead to good things in general. We also have to remember this, jot this down, Jesus is the full and final wisdom of God. While Solomon is saying wisdom is a good thing, um, wisdom alone can't get you to glory. Being wise, being disciplined, managing your money well, that alone can't get you anywhere in the next life. That's why the New Testament comes in and makes it clear that Solomon kept hitting dead ends with his wisdom. It didn't take him where he thought. It took him to good places, but it didn't take him to the end of where he wanted to get. Only Jesus can do that. Colossians 2.3 says this, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Hey, do you understand that? Is Jesus your mountain of gold? Have you learned what Solomon has learned, that wisdom is good, that knowing things is good, maybe, maybe being informed is really good, but then have you hit that dead end and realized it's not going to take you all the way to eternity? Do you realize that you need more than just your earthly understanding of things to get to the next life safely? And when it comes to money, do you realize, sure, it's helped, sure, it's been a blessing, sure, it's been a protection, but it's all going away soon, then what? And I love that it says in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's great. Is Jesus your mountain of gold? Is he your full and final wisdom from God? Do you look to him as your answer? Or are you still looking for things on earth to get you there? Always hold fast to God's wisdom, knowing that it's in Christ that the full and final wisdom is truly found. Jot this down. God's word is our compass for life. Following God's word, letting the word of God be the lamp to your feet and the light for your path is God's will for your life. Anytime you buy anything, you get an instruction manual, right? You know, even if you buy a blender, there's an instruction manual how to use it. And in life, you also get a book. And this book is God's word. Following God's word is like following God's compass to exactly where he wants you to be. 
And the wise person follow, follows God's word, puts it into practice. The fool throws this book out the window, lives life their own way, doesn't care what God's word says. Um, and so being wise means God's word is our compass for life. Now, when we were in, in Phoenix, uh, you know that we love to hike. And um, we also had the joy of being there with my father in the faith, Pastor Scott, who led me to faith in Christ. He baptized me when I was in college. And then he married Lauren and me, first one to say, hey, have you ever thought about being a pastor? So, uh, you know, I and all of us kind of owe him a great debt of gratitude because God used him to get me into ministry. Um, and so it was really cool that they were there at the NSP conference too. And Pastor Scott's wife, Vicki, is a cancer survivor, and she's been in remission for a while now. So we said, hey, do you want to go climb a mountain together? And they're like, sure. And they hadn't climbed Camelback Mountain together, and so they, they had no clue what was coming. Uh, and so here's some pictures of us, you know, uh, making our way um, up Camelback Mountain. That's us getting ready for the journey ahead. And if you're leading people up Camelback Mountain who have never gone up it, your job is to just kind of try and deceive them long enough where they make it to the top, right? Or they can't turn around and come back down. So you just keep saying, you're almost there. Let's keep going. So here's some pictures of us uh, making our way up to the top. Actually, that's them at the top. Uh, so they, they made it up there, which was a huge triumph. Uh, and I think we also have a video of us just before the summit there. Do we have that video that you can play? Yeah, there it is. They're just before the summit. They've got just a little longer to go. Uh, and look at that. I mean, we've made, it was an hour and a half climb. Uh, so it was so cool. Now check out this picture. All along there are trail markers. Trail. And then there are warnings. Do not go past this point. The reason why I'm showing you these pictures is because God's word is that. God's word is that. When you're going through this life, there are treacherous trails and, and, and death falls with every decision that you make in a variety of areas. And God's word says, trail, stay on the trail. And then God's word says, stop, don't go any further down that road. The wise person will see the trail markers and stay on the safe trail of God's word. The fool walks past the markers, doesn't hear uh, the warnings, and ultimately, ultimately, in the end, falls to their eternal destruction. So Jesus is the full and final wisdom of God. God's word is our compass for life, getting us all the way up that mountain to glory forever. And then jot this down. Wise living is rare, elusive, but rewarded. Wise living is rare, elusive, and rewarded. Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. There's a blessing. Protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. It preserves the life of him who has it. And then it goes on to say how elusive it is. In verse 24, or verse 23, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I'll be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Now, of course, the answer there is the Lord Jesus Christ brought it with him. But Solomon is looking into the bottomless pit of knowledge and understanding of this life, and he's like, I got nothing! And he literally is the wisest person alive. He talks about wisdom and also brings in virtue and piety. And he talks about the uh, bad side too, vice, madness, and folly. Solomon actually walked down those roads too, and he's like, well, maybe the meaning of life is down the path of sin. And he didn't find, that there, find it there either. So he's concluding what we must, that we should always hold fast to God's wisdom. True life on earth vanishes without heaven's wisdom. 
True life on earth vanishes without heaven's wisdom. So, beginning with the end in mind, are you getting ready for eternity? Hey, always hold fast to God's wisdom. Now he continues on. He continues on. And here's what he says. Verse 13, this starts a new section. Consider the work of God. Who can straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you should take hold of this. From that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. All right, so generally, jot this down, number two. Number one was always hold fast to God's wisdom. Number two is, but prepare for joy and sorrow. But prepare for joy and sorrow. So you hear verse one, always hold to God's wisdom, and you're like, okay, I'll do it. And then something really wrong happens, and you're like, ouch. (laughs) But I did what you told me to do. I didn't do what you told me not to do, Lord. And now something very bad has happened to me. Solomon is now sharing the exception. Prepare for joy and sorrow. Okay, I'll live the righteous life. Ouch, that hurt. It's the way it's going to work. The Bible calls this the crooked things. The crooked things. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? There are things in your life that will hurt. Things in your life that are wrong. Things that seemingly should not have happened. Especially when you were doing nothing wrong. Especially when you were walking the trail and then suddenly you broke your leg. Suddenly a boulder came down and hit you. God, how can this happen? Why do the righteous suffer? It's a question that humanity has asked for so long. It's a question that the Bible is very aware of and that the Bible deals with as well. The crooked things in life, Solomon doesn't spell out what he means, but it's so general. It can include anything in your life that you feel like is wrong, that shouldn't have happened that is painful. It's the crooked things. And it's something that God has allowed in his providence. Here's a picture of some crooked things after a storm came through. This sign got bent. Metal bent right over. Here's another angle. And uh, I I like this picture because this, there are things in your life that are this. There are things in your life where a storm came through and it just, whether you were young or or a young adult or or in your older year, it just just something was bent and here's the thing it's not being straightened it's one of those things like a thorn in paul's flesh it's just not being straightened and you fear maybe that it won't be straightened this side of heaven and you don't know what to do with that in the book that i told you i'm reading too by phil Riken, why everything matters the gospel in ecclesiastes you should definitely get that book chapter eight is called the crook in the lot He talks about a pastor who did a whole sermon on the crook in the lot, a pastor who had lost several children in infancy and felt like dropping out and abandoning ministry, but stuck with it. And 
And in this chapter, he shares a lot of good insights. He says we need to see our situation in terms of the sovereign goodness of God. If there is a crook in our lot, it is the work of God. It would be vain for us to try and change it. We are under his divine care. We do not have the power to edit God's agenda. Whether we're having a good day or a bad day, there's always some way for us to glorify God. He goes on to say, why does God leave some things crooked even when we pray for him to make them straight? Perhaps God carefully designs these crooks we have to turn our hearts away from this vain world, to teach us to look for happiness in the life to come, to prepare for eternity. In his sovereignty over our suffering, God is at work to accomplish our real spiritual good. Would you demand that God get rid of all the crooks, your disability, your disease? Would you change your job or your financial situation? Would you change your appearance or your abilities, your situation in life? Or would you trust God for all the crooked things in life and wait for him to make them straight, even if you had to wait until the resurrection? I don't know what it is in your life that you would consider to be something that's crooked, but the Bible tells us that we will face trials and that we have to allow God to allow things into our lives that are not pleasant. Prepare for joy and sorrow. Jot this down, the righteous will suffer. The righteous will suffer. You can do things right. You can follow God. You can go to church. You can raise your kids in, in the way of the Bible and things will still go wrong. Who are the righteous? Well, Solomon would define them as those who fear God and find lasting joy in him and live according to the wisdom that God has revealed to them. Those, those would be the righteous. The righteous will suffer. And the righteous should expect this. This isn't, this isn't saying God is evil. This isn't saying God does anything wrong. He doesn't. Every good and perfect gift is from God, and he's never tempted by sin. But everything happens under his sovereignty. And so we have to understand that he does ordain for these things. And right, Job asked, should we receive good from God and not bad? We're not able to demand only good things from God. If this is a deal you've been trying to make with God, if you gave God a contract, here's the things I will expect you to forbid from my life, Lord. Here's a contract. I'll do good. I'll be good. And here's the 99 things that you can't ever let happen to me or my children. Deal? Deal? Now, maybe you haven't actually typed it up, but in your heart, you might have that deal, and you may have made the mistake of thinking God signed your contract. Listen, he tore it up. He tore it up. There is no deal. There never was. And when a house gets dropped on your life, or a wrecking ball comes through your front door, God never made that deal. He did promise to work everything together for good. He did make that promise. That's the deal he did make. The righteous will suffer. You've seen this, right? You've lived this, right? You've felt this, right? In your friends and in your family, bad things happen to good people. Jot this down, and even worse, the wicked will prosper. The wicked will prosper. Who are the wicked? Those that deny God, despise his word, and take advantage of other people. Solomon would call those the wicked. Beware if life is going good for you, you've got a great portfolio, a lot of people respect you, and you've got nice cars and a nice house, and you've kind of come through COVID okay, and you don't serve Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Beware, beware. You might actually think, God must be blessing me. Look at all the good things he's given me. Beware. 
you know some of the sternest warnings in Scripture are to the rich? Woe, woe unto you, right? If you are rich on earth, but not rich toward God in heaven. Please don't make the mistake of thinking if everything's gone well and you have your health and you have your money and your family has turned out okay, that that must mean God likes you a lot. No, that's not what that means. Not at all. Never forget that the first test Job had to pass by faith was prosperity. And he passed that. Then Satan took it all away to test him without it. Wow. The wicked will prosper. Riches are a test. Are you walking by faith? And jot this down. Don't expect these extremes to secure and satisfy you. So there are, there are these extremes, and then we try and find these extremes as if they're a path out of the human predicament. So it says in verse 15, well, it says in verse 14, be joyful in the day of prosperity. Okay, enjoy it. Things are going well. And in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made one as well as the other. This is what it means to be content with your lot so that man may not find out everything that will be after him. It's puzzling. It's puzzling. You can't figure it all out. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Seen that? Seen that. So verse 16, this could be really confusing, actually. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So it sounds like it's really confusing what he's saying. Don't be too good. Don't be too bad. Just be in the middle. Just be wicked enough. Just be righteous enough. And if you walk away thinking that, that is dead wrong. So the second conference we were at, well, actually the first and second conference that we were at, we got a picture of it. One of them was called the Simeon Trust Preaching Workshop. So I went to, these are all uh, pastors and preachers in the room, and this first conference was uh, pastors who said, let's grow our preaching gift together. So we spent two straight days in 1 Samuel, and what we did was we got back to the fundamentals. Let's say, hey, let's sharpen our skills, let's get into the Word together, and let's make sure when we dig into God's Word, we're figuring out exactly what it means before we preach it. And you know, ordinarily, pastors are just in their office figuring all this stuff out, so it's so much better to be at a table with guys, and you're like, well, I think he's saying this, and to have another man who knows the Word of God just as well as you saying, ah, I don't think so. So we, we, we do that together. So that's what that Simeon Trust Workshop was. And then here's a couple more pictures from the lead conference. These are uh, leaders and pastors from our GCC network, and Paul Tripp was there. And it's all about growing as leaders. And so uh, I think we have one more picture maybe. And so this was really cool and encouraging from our network. But back to the Simeon Trust part, I had to camp on this for a little while and remember what I learned at that conference and say, okay, what exactly is Solomon meaning when he says, be not overly righteous? And don't make yourself too wise. Um, he's saying that if that becomes the foundation for your identity and your relationship to the next life, like I'm going to be wise and I'm going to, be, uh, I'm going to follow a way of piety, maybe even I'm going to become a priest and I'm going to be super holy, if that becomes your plan to be overly righteous, it's going to fail. His idea is this, going down that path at an extreme level, without God, without God as your trust and your hope, is a dead end. This could include the Pharisees in the New Testament who flaunted their Bible knowledge and, you know, tried to command other people what the rules were. They're trying to be overly righteous. 
it includes a self-righteousness that is condemned by God. The priests were corrupt in Jesus' day. Those are the ones who put him to death. They were overly righteous, and they even combined that with political power and riches, and they killed the Messiah. Um, you learning more and more and more and kind of becoming the expert on the Greek and the Hebrew, as if, if you think that takes you a step up compared to your fellow humans, you're dead wrong. Trying to be overly righteous will not get you out of the human predicament. That's the point. It won't work. Now, those who are trying to be overly wicked, the idea here is that most people kind of hang in the middle. Now, look, that's not a safe place either. Most people, I'm a pretty good person. I don't get too carried away with religion, but I don't go all the way. I'm not a murderer. I just stay in the middle. Guess what? That's not safe either. That does not put you in a safe place. All three of these plans don't work. He's just trying to show you the extremes don't work either. So going down the path of wickedness, some people conclude, I've just been held back my whole life. It's time to live it up. And they bust through the barricades of sin that their parents have put up, often right when they go to college. And now they're, you've been holding me back. And they, like the prodigal son, they go off and they live for sex and drugs and they, they live the life that's just selfish. And whatever barriers were put up, they think that the joyful, satisfying life is down the road of wickedness. Uh, politicians or financial managers sell their souls and they go all the way down the path of corruption. They think, what's the point? That's where I'm going to find my good life. Guess what? Dead ends. Those won't work either. So don't buy into the lie that these extremes can secure and satisfy you. Wherever you are, if you are living a life and you're not fearing God, you're not following his wisdom, you're not trusting him alone to make your soul glad, everything will fail. None of those paths will work. Number one, always hold fast to God's wisdom. Number two, prepare for joy and sorrow. The righteous will suffer. The wicked will prosper. Don't expect extremes to secure and satisfy you. They won't get you off the hook. And then jot this down. Number three, understand everyone is ignorant and fallen. Everyone is ignorant and fallen. So he says in verse 20, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Boy, this sounds a whole lot like the book of Romans, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Solomon's looking for the wise people. Hard time finding them. He's looking for the righteous people. Not one person on earth who's perfectly righteous. Understand everyone is ignorant and fallen. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. He's kicking it off by saying, look, I'm telling you to be wise. I'm telling you the extremes won't work. Uh, but I'm also telling you we're all in the same predicament. We're all really, really stuck on earth. Verse 21, don't take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So there you are at the water cooler. And a co-worker said something catty about you. She said what? Oh, 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 how dare she? You've done it too. Come on now. You've said nasty things too. Now why does he just insert this random watch out for gossip in the middle? Don't take it too hard. It's because he's, he's establishing a theme here. Okay, so jot this down. We should avoid self-righteousness. We should avoid self-righteousness. And he's just using one little example. 
Like, hey, hey, uh, there's not a righteous person on earth who hasn't sinned. That's you. That's me. We've all sinned. Example, you hear someone saying something that's critical of you. Uh, you did it too. Don't get all wound up. How dare they? Do they know who I am? Don't be self-righteous. You're not better than anybody else. All right. You're really not. If you're sitting next to your spouse, you can give them a little elbow here. You're not better than anyone else. Okay. You're not a step up above any human. Understand that we're all ignorant and fallen. So we should avoid self-righteousness. We've all sinned. We're born into sin, and we also choose to sin. And trying to overdo it and show off and be self-righteous. Look how religious and pious and perfect I am. Yeah, that's a path toward destruction. Then he he shares a few more things. He goes on to say this. um, Verse 23, All this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off. Deep, very deep. Who can find it? He's not saying, I'm the one who figured it out. He's like, I don't even know how to figure it out. And then he says, I turn my heart to know and to search out, to seek wisdom in the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. He admits that he actually went down the dark paths and didn't find anything there. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. What is he saying here? Well, write this down. We must escape the trap of sin. So we should avoid self-righteousness, right? That. He's, he's again condemning the extremes. Self-righteous, look at how holy and righteous and I am. You know, now he's like, uh, hey, look, even though this is the human predicament, don't go all the way down the path of sin. He's shutting those extremes still. Seems like he inserts some warning against a specific kind of woman. Uh, the promiscuous woman, the adulteress, is throughout Proverbs a big, big problem. And, and to, be, to be warned about it. Seems like he's probably inserting a proverb about that. Uh, more bitter than death is the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. So one example of a trap is a man who encounters a promiscuous woman who's going to steal his integrity. Throughout Proverbs, for young men, that's a gigantic warning that he keeps warning people about. It would be very much in keeping with his writing to insert that here. If he wants to show, don't go down the path of trying to be better than everybody, and don't go down the path of wickedness, these would be perfect examples for him to cite. But then he starts to expand this warning, and this is the part of the sermon where I was most nervous about preaching, because this is the part of the sermon where Solomon goes on to insult all of the women of the world. Prepare yourself. It says in verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. So he's talking about his search for wise, righteous people on earth. And he says here in his conclusion, I found one man in a thousand, but I didn't even find one woman among all of the women. Let's pray. (laughs) I was actually most nervous about preaching this verse. It would be a very easy escape for me to say Solomon was obviously a chauvinist. He had a thousand concubines and wives. Hello. The way that he thought about women and treated them was a huge problem. It'd be very easy for me to say, And back in that day, men and women were equally uneducated. So for Solomon to actually say, I have a thousand wives and concubines, and I can't have a conversation with one of them that keeps up with me in terms of wisdom and intellect, that might be true. Like, God gave him supernatural wisdom, and he might be like, the Queen of Sheba came to town. She was kind of known as one of the wisest people alive, and she was like, I can't keep up with him. So maybe that's what he's saying. It sounds really insulting. 
Um, with men too, you know, how many men were able to keep up with Solomon? Maybe one in a thousand. Maybe he's actually making a statement that is true. It's really condescending and insulting, right? Is that all that's going on here? Is Solomon just being like, hey, here's my report. You know, I really don't have many people that can keep up with me intellectually. That could be it. We definitely know that he is not saying something about women in particular that is true in Scripture. Solomon is not suggesting that there's no wise women on the whole planet. Uh, the Bible doesn't teach that at all. And I don't think that's what Solomon is saying either. He's not making a comment. Uh, we know in the book of Proverbs, you know, the, the, uh, the woman of noble character is listed, likely from Solomon in the last chapter of the book. So women are absolutely praised in the Bible for being wise and virtuous. So that leaves us with the question, what is he saying? Let's notice first that he's not just insulting women. He's insulting all humanity. He says, I found one man among a thousand and not one woman. Well, what is that going to do for us, guys? Is that going to make us boast? <laughs> one of a thousand of us is wise. Ha ha. You know, we're, we're 999% out of a thousand dumb, you know, but uh, compared to, I mean, like, he's insulting everyone equally, okay? He's making a comment about humanity. I think the math is overstated for effect, right? The math is overstated because he's trying to show us that there is a big problem with humanity that can't be solved with wisdom, okay? But I think there's actually something a little more cool here going on, a little cooler going on. Here's what he says. He says, um, I have not found one man among a thousand, a woman among all these I have not found. Now look at verse 29. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So like I, when I took a break from my sermon prep on Friday and I was eating my chipotle at the uh, table in my office, I kind of had a bit of an idea here. I wonder if what Solomon is saying here is interesting. There's a man walking around looking, looking, looking for wisdom, looking for a wise woman to accompany him. He's not finding it. <clears throat> he's not finding it. And he's not finding other men who have it. And he's not finding other women who have it. And then... It kind of looks back to creation. God made man upright. That's interesting, isn't it? But they've sought out many schemes. I wonder if Solomon feels in his heart like he's stuck at the very beginning of humanity. We've gotten nowhere. Remember when God said, for Adam there was no suitable helper found, and it is not good. It's the first time God said something was not good. Man, all alone, no suitable helper. It really sounds like he's there. And didn't Satan tempt them in the Garden of Eden, tell the woman, you will be wise like God? How did that turn out? It seems like Solomon is going back to that and reflecting on how that turned out. And, and how did it turn out? Uh, well, hundreds, thousands of years later, one man standing alone, he's not wise, and he can't find anybody who's wise. He's, he can't find a helper fit for him. It almost feels like he's locating himself there. It's not good still. Satan's lie didn't pan out. Wisdom wasn't the way. Wisdom wasn't the way. And I think that does add a bit of a beauty to this. He's lamenting how he feels trapped in a sinful fallen world. And he doesn't know how to get out of step one. I think that's a pretty beautiful way to reflect on this. We must escape the trap of sin. He's not sure how to do it. 
He feels like humanity is stuck at that very sad and sorry beginning, perhaps. And that's why I jot this down. We must prepare for eternity now. His conclusion is, we have to face this. We have to face the reality. That's why we read from 6.12 and 7.1-2. He knows the end is coming. That's why he says it's better to go to a funeral than a party. Because the end is coming and we're all trapped in sin and we don't know how to get out of it and we can't even get off of square one. The earth is overrated and unsatisfying, full of dead ends, traps. There's a maze of emptiness. He looks around and doesn't see people living wisely or, or virtue. Most people are just seeking out schemes. We're all fallen and trapped and helpless and hopeless, but eternity is in our hearts, and that's all where it's heading. Hey, like Solomon, have you looked around and felt deep within your soul the futility of life on earth? Have you realized that even on your best days you haven't satisfied God's standards of holiness? And have you realized that even those dark trails you walked down never left you happy for long? And now are you kind of in the middle trying to be a good person, but you don't know where you're going in the next life? Do you feel the despair? Do you feel the hopelessness? Welcome to Solomon's heart. Do you feel like even if you look all the way back to the beginning, you don't even know the way to please God? Well, I've got good news for you. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Only heaven can bring you hope. Earth can't do it. If you've been trying everything on earth and missing out, Jesus came into the world to save your soul. And I want to tell you that you can find a joy that comes from another world. You can find a joy and a righteousness and a peace and a virtue that's found in the risen Lord Jesus Christ so nothing on earth and no one on earth can ever take it away from you. It will be better than your best days. It will be more satisfying than all the delights of sin. It's salvation in Jesus Christ. And I want to close by showing you our brothers and sisters in uh, Ukraine whose lives have been turned upside down in an instant. They don't know what to do. They don't know where they're going. They don't know how they're going to survive through the week. They don't know what the next several years are hold. This is not going away anytime soon. And I want to show you one video that made its way around social media where they decided that while they were um, in a bomb shelter underneath the ground, they were going to have a bit of a praise service. Check it out. Have you seen this video? Here it is. I texted Pastor Alex and I said, what are they saying? What are they saying? And he said, they are saying this. My name is in the book of life. My name is in the book of life. They have no earthly reason to be joyful. Nothing on earth right now. But they have everything in heaven. Is your name in the book of life? Let's pray. Jesus, I know there are some here today who have that hope. They have that faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, they've been beat up in this world, but they know that their name is written in the book of life, the Lamb's book, the list full of everyone who has been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They've been saved by faith through grace. But there are some here today who have been trying everything on earth and coming up short. Maybe today is the day that they say, Jesus, save me, for I've tried everything and it's all failed. I'm empty, I'm hopeless. I have failed to fulfill your standards. Jesus, save me. Save me and write my name in the Lamb's book of life. Give me that joy that I just saw on the screen from people who just lost everything. Give me that joy. 
Give me that faith. Give me that peace. Give me that hope. And walk me safely through this world, come what may. Oh Lord, I pray that people would abandon their life of sin right now. Abandon their life of abundance and covetousness. Abandon their life of excess and indulgence. And they would turn to the only one who can be there satisfying their souls 10,000 years from now. The only one who can give them hope and joy if they were to lose everything tomorrow. Jesus, thank you for being our Lord. All the treasures of heaven are in you. All the wisdom is in you. We will find it nowhere on earth. Praise you, Jesus, for filling our souls with eternal life. Amen.